Welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Dana Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our library of weekly archive shows. It is our goal to make a difference. And, uh, yes, good day, good morning, uh, depending on uh, when you are listening to this podcast. It's a pleasure to have you again each and every Saturday on a variety of topics. And um, so today, um, instead of focusing on um, violence per se or homicide per se or missing persons per se, uh, we are focusing on an educational aspect of of uh, violence. Um, but before I uh, introduce our guest, who happens to be Dr. Will Marling, um, I want to uh, say good morning to uh, Delilah Jones um, from Myrtle Beach. How are you, Delilah? Great, Donna. Thank you. Yeah, this is another really good show for information. I think this is something that's very important for our listeners today because we need to figure out what's going on on our campuses and universities across the country. Um, We're seeing such a spike in violence, or maybe we're just hearing about it more. Um, So I think the guest that we have today, Will Marling, is um, really going to get into the nuts and bolts of how we can look at this from a different perspective and perhaps do something about it. Yeah, um, and I think they have been doing something about it. And just so that people know, we did do an initial show back in December of 2014 with Will's predecessor, uh, Daniel uh, S. Daniel Carter. And so this is kind of an update in some ways, but Um, We like to sort of uh, build a framework. It's kind of like starting with the foundation, and um, maybe we'll have uh, Will give us some background if we have new listeners. But um, let me just introduce him quickly. Uh, um, Will is the uh, Interim Senior Director for Operations and uh, Programs for for the – 32 NCI, which is National Campus Safety Initiative dot uh, org, and I believe the uh, significance of 32 is uh, has to do with Virginia Tech and uh, tragedy with, from which this was an outgrowth. So, um, and uh, he also was the former uh, executive director of uh, the National Organization for Victim uh, Assistance, where I met him in Ohio, and he is an Ohio native and. Uh, worked um, prior to that with um, law enforcement and um, um, first responders and kind of got his feet wet in victim advocacy, and I guess he really liked it and, and found out a calling. So here we are, and I, he's, he's one of my favorite guests. So without further ado, Will Marling, um, thank you for being with us again. It's a pleasure. Oh, thank you, Donna. It's great to be here. It's always great to interact with you. It's fun to be able to talk offline or online. It's a a great opportunity for me, so thank you for this honor. You're welcome. Um, So with respect to our topic today, um, 
you with with your your role um, with the 32 uh, NCI uh, org Excuse me. Um, can you tell us um, who should be besides the obvious populations? Who should be listening to this show? Well, can I back up just a little bit? Sure. Uh, if you don't sure. mind, you're you're very gracious. Yep. Let me give a little a brief orientation because. Uh, right. Just to make sure we're clear, I'm actually assisting the Virginia Tech Victim Family Outreach Foundation. VTV uh, is the surviving family members, not all of them, but many of them, surviving survivors and surviving family members of April 16, 2007. And just in a simple nutshell, they formed a foundation in 2009, and I'm mm-hmm. assisting the foundation, one of my oversights is 32 national campus safety initiative. So it's, it's okay. kind of helpful to understand where that falls. And, you know, nothing you said was inordinately inaccurate. It was just, it's kind of like, what's the relationship here? Sometimes people do get a little bit confused because it seems like 32 national campus safety initiative, or like, you know, we like to say 32 NCSI is its own animal, but it really falls under, under uh, the, the BCV yeah, under the foundation, and um, and that's significant, you know, because the families they they recognized in their development of the foundation, they recognized the need for proactive issues and approaches related to campus safety. So then, relative to your question, anybody who has a a student or knows a student, friends with a student, is a relative of a student, and of course, students can be. Uh, quite young today in terms of higher education, and they can be fairly old as well. So when we look at the campus environment for higher education, and that can be physical campus or virtual campus today, you know, this concept of campus safety literally touches millions of people beyond just 18 to 24. Uh it it does, and you were telling me with regard to the the diversity of people who were uh, or the the different types of uh, educational institutions that are involved in this, isn't it? Anywhere from a small private university to ones that have like thousands of students. Sure. So let me orient your listeners there once again, because we've talked a lot, of course, and you. Uh, you, you you mentioned interviewing Daniel Carter, and, and Daniel was uh, significant to the formation of 32 NCSI. 32 NCSI is an, a free online source that was developed to provide campus school administrators, basically, with the opportunity to assess nine areas of campus safety. And so it's, it's actually, it's extremely cutting edge. Cutting edge, you know, sometimes can be an overused word or set of words, but the the idea really is that with all of the compliance issues that universities face today with the Clery Act and Title IX and so on, this is really an opportunity for administrators to go online or to assign key individuals within their university context to go online and assess privately and specifically these nine areas of campus safety. And that's why 32ncsi.org is significant because that represents a, the website where people can go to understand this assessment. But then for administrators, they can there's a link to take them to actually sign up and participate. So in that matrix right there, 
we do have a wide and diverse range of participants to date. This was officially launched in August of last year in 2015, so it hasn't been underway very long. As you can imagine, it's a, it's a nonprofit engagement enterprise, which means we're always looking for resources to help advance it and so on. But we have about 100 schools participating, and as you mentioned, it's quite diverse, ranging from small, private, faith-based schools to extremely large uh, community schools and so on. So it's, it's, it's quite robust. Even at this point, uh, there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of participation at uh, broad levels. And at my last count, we had, I think, about 33 states represented out of the 50 states. Right now, it's a U.S.-based operation, though we do mm-hmm. have queries definitely from, from uh, schools abroad. They would love to participate, and that might be for the future. But one important thing for us, why we're trying to get university officials to to go through this mechanism is that we want to aggregate the data. We want to understand what issues they're facing through this. And so while it's it's private, we don't disclose unless the university itself wants to disclose their participation and the outcomes of their own personal assessment. We don't do that. And so we, we don't transmit, you know, any specific school name or data anywhere. But at the same time, we can aggregate that data to understand better the kinds of safety issues that the universities are facing. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, well once, a- they do, once they do the assessment, ahead, what's the next step? Mm-hmm. Where, where do they go from there? Is there a program in place where they can make corrections or do certain things that will improve the situation? You know, that's a great question, Delilah. The, contextually, again, for for the foundation, you know, the foundation we're looking for more resources to uh, to not only expand this, which we're, we're looking to expand the modules. Nine areas would like to move to about twelve coming up, like with study abroad safety, cyber safety, even the concept of resilience, victim assistance, that kind of thing. So we have dreams about where this can go. At present because of our limitations of capacity and that being human and financial, what happens is they get done and they get a report and it shows them really where the gaps might be. And they, they have, you know, the impetus is upon them to say, okay, here's where we, we know we need to address this. The great thing about this approach is it's like any question that somebody asks you who's informed, just the very question itself, to those who want to grow and change and improve is meaningfully provocative. It's, it's provocative in that healthy sense, right? So the asking these questions from the standpoint of the subject matter experts who put together the assessment questions, that in and of itself is very significant. What we'd like to do is moving forward is for them to have links to specific resources where it says want to know more about let's say hazing, or do you need training on hazing? We'd love to be able to, you know, connect the dots immediately. At present, we, we haven't made that connection. It's just an issue of capacity. But if they contact me directly, I can, I can do that. I can say, okay, here's some things, some folks that we worked with, for, uh, for instance, our subject matter experts, or, you know, quite frankly, with the, the world today, there are lots of places that they can begin to review and discover those kinds of resources. So that's mm-hmm. really where we are at the, this point. Does that make sense? Yeah, I 
I think it I think it makes sense. Um, is is the format? I mean, are you able to give us some kinds of uh, of info that's available within each area? Like, do they read narratives, or is it a checklist kind of thing, or do they ask questions and then you have to like formulate a response and then they go, "Aha, this is really a problem here." How? I mean, just so that we get some sense of what the format of the assessment might be, or it's does really... it depend on the area? Yeah, no, no, it's, it's, it's consistently formatted. So it's really an issue of meaningful questions. For, for, for example, uh, you know, do you have a policy on hazing? And then if you tick the box yes, then it can unfold a series of other questions. You know, does your hazing policy address this, 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 or this? Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. So, and, and so what it does is it guides you through not just the beginning of an assessment in a given area like alcohol and drug abuse, but it also then helps you refine your policies and procedures. Because you, you might say, you know, yes, we have a policy on hazing. Well, you know, how far does that hazing policy go? That's what's important. Because, mm-hmm. you know, we know hazing remains a significant problem on college campuses. And many times people don't even know what hazing means, for instance. You know, we, we throw these phrases around, it, you know, is your hazing policy defined and this kind of thing. So, again, from the standpoint of the subject matter experts who, def, who put together these questions, the questions themselves can be quite provocative. If you can't answer yes to something that right there is significant, you know. And, again, we don't condemn people or institutions for not having, uh, not being able to say yes to something. What we do is we say, fantastic, you're on here and you want to learn, you want to improve campus safety in your, your, for your institution, and so you're going for it. Right. So if you, hypothetically, if you answer no, if you answer no, then there is a, um, there a matter, is a, of, a matter of refinement. Uh, yeah, that's it, exactly right. It keeps leading you on to um, continue the process, and you say, oh, okay, this is the point where um, I really need to focus. That's exactly right. So, you know, it's, uh, you, you answer the question, no, you know, you don't get a pop-up from us saying, ooh, bad school, bad school. You know, it's, it doesn't work like that. It's, the idea okay. is, okay, we should have answered yes, and everybody knows it. I mean, we're talking about, you know, people who are committed to this process. I mean, it's hard to find institutions who don't want to have a safe campus, but there are a lot of forces at work that are guiding them to make choices, and this is one of our issues that we're constantly trying to educate, you know, and I – because I'm sympathetic personally to higher education challenges. You've got administrators who have the Department of Education on them saying, you know, there are major compliance issues that we are forced to legislate, you know, from Congress. And that's where you get, you get important efforts in times past, like the Clery Act that was really about saying, tell us exactly what's going on on your campus regarding campus safety or crime. And, you know, none of us want to talk about those issues generally, right? Particularly something like a campus or like a cruise ship. You know, there's cruise ship crime. I've been involved in understanding that issue. Well, nobody wants to talk about that. We want to talk about the great, happy stuff. But it's important to understand for the sake of the participants, the families and all, 
What are my risks in going to a given institution? And that's what this is about. Crime is everywhere. So, you know, when you read a report like came out of the Columbus Dispatch just not too many months ago, uh, you know, the, the, the Columbus Dispatch article basically showed that some universities, particularly in Ohio, they were focused there, were saying, you know, we didn't have, in these particular categories, we had no campus crime. Well, wait a minute. I mean, you know, <laughs> we all know that that simply is not possible. That's not true. When you, right. Yeah, it's not true. So it, it actually causes you more problems to say, oh, no, we don't have that problem here. You know, we don't have gangs in our city. We don't have a drug problem. We it's, don't it's have human trafficking. Say, yeah, it's so We don't have human trafficking. Right? That's right. Right. That's right. What we do is Denial. we turn around and say, okay, we recognize that's everywhere. Here's what the problem looks like to the best of our ability. But here's my, I, you know, I'm, I, I go back to the compliance issue. When you start forcing compliance, you create fears and concerns for those who are forced to comply so that they focus more on the compliance issue, maybe more than the competence issue. And so when it comes to serving victims in this context, there's a whole vocation called victim advocates, and they are very sophisticated in their training and preparation to help those who've been victimized, to understand their needs, their rights, and so on. And that sometimes rubs against compliance, right? Because, you know, you ask an administrator, which are you more concerned about in terms of fines or your own prosecution by the government? Well, it's compliance. So we're mm-hmm. trying to help people understand that it's compliance with competence. Those, those can work together because the compliance ultimately was designed with good intention to focus on competence in serving the needs of victims. Right. And doesn't self-disclosure kind of open Pandora's box? Well, self-disclosure in what sense? In the, it, what do you with mean by regard that? To um the the status of uh of the different types of um, types in um, in services that you have if you are if you are right, I'm hearing a real echo here I think you need to turn um, your speakers off on your computer okay yeah Thank i don't you. I don't hear it, and I'm on a headset, Donna, just so you know all right. Thank you. I'm here. My speakers are all the way down. (laughs) I don't know, Donna. Well, you know, Will, one thing I wanted to ask is do you feel like a lot of these administrators cover up some of the incidents that are happening on campus? They don't want that bad reputation, so to speak, to, you know, um, keep – Keep enrollment down. If they if enrollment goes down because people are afraid to go to that school, then you know they're not going to have the money to do it. Sure. I mean that that I I suppose that's always a potential. You know, of the roughly forty seven hundred institutions of higher learning in the United States, the potential for an institution to feel the environment's so competitive that they they need to tone down statistics or maybe their perception is that their statistics would be uh, unduly influencing people in that sense. You know, my approach is 
not to presume that as such. We know that nobody's excited about talking about the problems they have in their community. I mean, in general, we, it's, 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 it's not a cultural thing from our standpoint, generally, you know, in the Western environment to, uh, to approach problems that way. And yet, what, what it, it's counterintuitive to say, yeah, we have problems, and, and here's how we're addressing them. And that's actually what brings people comfort. And that's what we're trying to convey to institutions is uh, approaching the issues very transparently is really the best way to affirm and promote trust in that community environment. So, for instance, my daughter started – her, her higher education experience last fall, and as a first-year first student, you know, I went to orientation, and I was impressed with what was going on. Of course, I cornered the dean of students who oversees their emergency response and management. I started asking questions, and he said, as soon as I started, he said, okay, stop for a second. Now, who are you? <laughs> you know, why, are, why are you asking me questions that very few parents ask me? And he was great about it. And I explained, you know, my background with things. He said, okay. So then we talked shop because he started rattling off things that, you know, for me were immediately indicative of his experience, his commitment, and his understanding of these issues. And so he could do that very brief, very quickly with me and efficiently as opposed to trying to explain in maybe more layperson's terms to the average parent, you know, the kinds of efforts they were making at, at the university, at the school, to, you know, promote safety. But that, that doesn't happen everywhere. And parents aren't always asking those questions. They think, I want to be safe, or I want my, my child to be safe, my loved one to be safe. But what actually does that mean? You know, and, and that's know why the questions to ask, right? They don't know the questions, and that's why 32 NCSI also offers parents and students the opportunity to become educated and aware. Here's the questions to ask. Do you have this? Do you have this policy and so on? And that, that really is the best way ultimately to handle things because the customer for the universities is not the Department of Education. It's, it's not the state generally. Those states, obviously, and the federal government can contribute funding to these institutions. It's the students. They ultimately are the reason that we're all there, and they're the ones that are paying tuition or, as I right. like to say, you know, it's pair pay. It's parent pay because I'm a paying parent right now. It's, it's pair pay, not prepay. And, you know, I'm the customer, and I want to know that the product you're giving me is not just high-quality education but a safe environment Safety for education. Is, oh, right. That's right. Is there a situation in which um, the, uh, if you, uh, you are looking, say, one or two years down the line uh, for, your, for your daughter or your son and um, you heard about this assessment, could the family or the student refer um, the school for this assessment? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the great thing to do would be to ask, hey, have you taken the 32 National Campus Safety Initiative assessment? Because, again, from the consumer standpoint or the customer standpoint, the university hearing, oh, you're interested in that? We need to explore that. That's really, you know, the bottom grassroots, bottom-up grassroots approach. That's the kind of thing that provokes many times institutions, unless they're so stayed and funded. And they're, you know, the – the longstanding kind of, you know, Ivy League-ish 
kind of schools, I mean, they have their own funding. And so they're not too worried about the impact maybe of uh, tuition. And yet, I think they're concerned about their image still. You know, they have they can have an image that's that's uh, you know quite quite noble and so on, and they want to preserve that. Well, the way to preserve that is not by hiring a big PR firm to handle that. It's by doing the right thing by their students, faculty, and staff. Right. Well, just as an example, um, I have to check and see. University of Connecticut um, was very high profile. Excuse me with the. Some sexual assault uh, crimes and hired a very high-profile, um, well-known attorney for them. And I'm I'm not sure that they're doing this uh, assessment, but I'm wanting to look into that because I'm I'm sure hoping that they are, you know, um, because they're very well known, particularly with regards to our basketball team and all of that. But that mm-hmm. that should not necessarily figure into it. I mean, it's it's you're buying, like you say, as a customer, you're buying the whole package. You're buying the fact that um, you want your child to have a high quality education. You want them to be safe. You want them to have a, a comfortable experience as well, right? So there's a lot of stake. Right. There's a lot of stake. But uh, it, yeah, no, how so, long is the process? If when a when a, a campus when a uh, institution of higher learning signs on, how um, how long does the actual process take, or is it uh, as you go kind of? Yeah, yeah, it's an as you go as you can kind of approach. It's better to be accurate more than fast. Mm-hmm. So let yeah. me let me give you let me just review the nine areas very quickly. Okay. I'll just provide them. You know, uh, yeah, we won't labor these because folks know what these. Yeah, but alcohol and other drug indicators is is one. Campus public safety itself, emergency management and response, hazing, mental health, physical security, sexual violence and harassment, threat assessment, and missing student indicators. So here's the nine current areas. And as you can imagine, they're, they're quite robust from the standpoint of what they represent, but also it's important to recognize that as a university works through them, some of them are far more involved and engaging than others. And if you are an administrator, you know, you're the associate vice president, uh, a dean, you're not necessarily yourself going to go through these, but you're going to talk to the campus police chief. You're going to talk to uh, student services, student affairs, this kind of thing, and you're going to assign these things out potentially. That's how the the operation is designed so that you can actually administer the assessment for your team. And as your team goes through it, let's say, some might take much longer than others, quite frankly, because of the nature of it. So I can't really give you a time frame. All I would say is it's worth the investment of the time. It is a meaningful investment toward campus safety, and it's very indicative of, you know, the opportunities that need to be taken to promote and protect students, faculty, and staff. Mm-hmm. Well, once it's first introduced, do, do the campus police have to take this program and present it to the administration, and they have to, to sign on um, with certain approvals? Well, it all depends on the institution, quite frankly. I mean, some some institutions are more lean when it comes to those kinds of uh, governance issues. You, you know, if you're maybe a small private institution, 
it's much easier to navigate some of these things than maybe a very large public institution. And again, it all depends on who is responsible for what. So in, in some environments, it, the police chief over the you know, campus public safety might be the person or the vice president. depends on who the, the chief might report to more than one person or might to, they might report to different areas. But the idea really is who's best to provide the assessment in any given area. So the, the chief himself or herself might actually assign, you know, a lieutenant or someone else to focus on that particular area. And that's why it can take time. You know, you have to look and say, who's best suited for this? And how does that person need, what, what information does that person need to be able to complete the assessment? Mm -hmm. um, well, it, it just seems to me, I went, you know, I went to, to uh, college and graduate school many years ago, and I'm sure that it has changed. But as a parent who has just gone through this, can you kind of walk somebody through what the um, process would be like when someone is in their junior year or in high school? This is what they would need to do, and you need to. You don't save all of your information for the prior to student education. What do you, what do you have to do? In beginning to look and contact and, you know, say you're considering three to five schools, how much of a time investment is involved here and what's the process for, for you to check these things out, Will? Well, you know, it can run concurrently with other explorations of the institutions that a student might be considering. If you were to narrow it down specifically to, let's say, five institutions and mm -hmm. – you know, your loved one has applied and been received to these five, then for me, the next phase would be, and it could run concurrently again. I'm not trying to say, you know, you do one before the other necessarily, but I would be looking at the safety issues of the, the particular possible or probable prospects. You know, my my daughter, when she was looking at places, I didn't initially talk about, you know, campus safety issues with any given institution until it was clear that she was serious about someplace. So, you know, you want to you want to be efficient with your time, but it really is asking those questions. And and the 32 Campus Safety Initiative website has some opportunities for students, as I mentioned, as well as parents or loved ones to become aware. What questions should I ask? And Again, it's not about telling somebody where they should or shouldn't go. It's about information. We need information to make decisions. You might say, this is a great academic institution, but I'm concerned about how they handle any given issue, and therefore I, I'm going to let that information influence my ultimate decision. That's what it's about. We just, as you know, Donna, you, you don't want to wake up one day and say, why didn't I ask that question? I, you know, this, this completely caught me off guard. I never thought of that. And then, as, as with many issues like this, all of a sudden you discover, oh, wow, you know, people have been talking about this. This is a problem. You know, it's, it's like some of the cities we have in our country that have significant crime issues. You know, you wouldn't move to that city without asking questions about not just where you're going to live, but certain aspects of the economy of that, of that city or you know, crime-related issues, we want to be aware so that we can make the best decision for us. Right. 
But isn't it also about asking the right people? You don't want to depend upon putting it out on Facebook. Yes, you can ask other parents who have children who are in college and sort of word of mouth, but the people who have the best information are the people that are running the institutions and are in charge. Absolutely. I mean, you want to go to an authority who has the responsibility to respond as well as the right to. So I'll give you another personal example. You know, when I sat through orientation of my, my daughter's school, they, the, the dean, I think it was the dean himself who said, look, we know that in this state it is against the law to, to drink alcoholic beverages underage. And it is our policy that we don't condone that, we do not promote that, but he looked around at all the parents and he said, you and I both know that this stuff happens. Now, he made huge points with me. I'm a safety advocate. I've been involved in this stuff. I've seen the outcomes of not just poor choices, but you know, predatory choices of individuals, right? And he made points with me because I, didn't, I knew better than to hear, well, we don't have a problem with alcohol here. Or you don't have to even say it like that. You know, there is no alcohol on our campus. Our policy is you know, students don't drink. Well, that's ridiculous. What I wanted to hear was, how do you approach that when the issue occurs? And he satisfied my attitude toward that or my concerns about that with, with a number of issues that he mentioned, but it all revolves around choices regarding the safety of the students, you know? And so Again, from the standpoint of awareness, that's what's important. That's why it seems counterintuitive to some of these administrators, but if an administrator is, is you know, listening or if there's a student affairs person who's listening, the idea is actually people know better. I mean, the students themselves are keenly aware that stuff goes on on campus. What they want to know is that it's going to be handled appropriately when it does happen. That's what this is about. And, you know, I don't know if you noticed, I thought you might at the front end of this uh, uh, broadcast, I thought you were going to ask, you know, mention about um, the, the headlines for Brigham Young University and the students who've come out talking about um, being punished for reporting rape. This is a oh, this right. is a headline issue, you know, and you know it's it's 2016 and these things still go on. We have to give. Uh, time for all of this to to emerge in terms of what the facts are, and yet this is not an uncommon theme in terms of people being punished for reporting crime on their campuses because it violates you know what's supposed to be another problem. I mean, victim blaming is so common in our culture because it's an easy way for us to explain why I'll never be a victim because I would never get drunk and put myself in a position like that, and that's just outrageous. Victim blaming is wrong, no matter what. You could be utterly intoxicated and be around safe people, and you're not going to be sexually assaulted. That's the issue. It's what people do to people that's wrong, not sometimes the poor choices that we might actually make. And so we need to focus on that. What, what are the behaviors of people that they intentionally make choices to violate you know, the rights and safety of other people. That's what matters here. And that's what really we're focused on when we're focused on campus safety. Well, and Will, how, how realistic is how it realistic to is keep it? the crazies off keep campus? Crazies I, mean, off campus. I mean, we can educate our students. We can educate um, our students. 
Um, we can educate our teachers and educate administrators our teachers and so forth. But there's always so going to be those crazies out there. Crazies out there. Yeah, well, you know, it uh, kind of depends on your definition of crazies. Though I get kind of the vernacular there are people that we can't control that do things that can harm themselves or other people. That I would affirm that that is a reality. That that the mass people, shooters, yes, that people that d- dangerous people exist, no question. The, but, uh, you know, the temptation, and I, I don't think you go here, but the temptation is to say, well, you know, they're everywhere anyway. Why do we bother? Well, we bother because it does make a difference, right? We, we bother because people can make choices when they discover things going on that reflect the opportunity to change. We, we know, and I'm, I, I follow... Uh, you know, a, a variety of trends here, but basically you look at the rape abuse incest national network.org. They, they provide a stat that affirms that most sexual assaults, for example, are committed by very few people and that 3% of rapists spend one day or more in jail. Now, what do those statistics mean to us? Well, first of all, they're a bit depressing <laughs> on their face, but in reality, it, it demonstrates that if we were to actually prosecute people for sexual assault, we would significantly stem the tide of this hor- horrible and egregious violation. And really the idea is that because people are not stopped in this one, if, if 3% of rapists spend one day or more in jail, that means that it's not a prosecution problem it's not a charging problem. It's a societal issue. We, for one, don't believe sexual assault victims when they say, I've been violated. But more than that, it shows potentially that if we were to stop the people who start, that we actually could address sexual assault. Those people will still exist, but we will have intervening measures to prosecute and incarcerate those folks and address this. But if you go into something and you discover that nobody's going to stop you and you're a predatory type, you know, bent on doing it, then it's going to continue to happen. So I right. believe we 3% can change it. Is, 3% is worth their trouble if, if they know statistically that that's all that is prosecuted. And, that's, you know, that's shameful. You know, that's shameful. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a yeah, societal it really issue. Is. That's, that's what I've, I've concluded. You know, we can blame different aspects of society on the problem but by and large i mean that that's a many there's a there's a core of that in this uh you know this expose on uh sexual assault on a particular campus that you know is leaning toward that that Mm -hmm. we really don't believe the victims and if we don't believe the victims if we start there in any given issue i mean that that's not going to lead us to good places we don't believe the victims Absolutely. We're lost. Right? We're absolutely lost. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, so we need to change that. Um, particular, out of the nine areas of assessment, um, and, you know, they're all very, very worthy areas to, to be focused on, what, in your opinion, would be the, maybe the most overlooked and something you're really wanting to, to hone in on um, that campuses really don't pay attention to that much? Well, let me kind of take your really good question and turn it a little bit. 
What okay. I would say is one reason to look at all of these nine areas collectively, as well as others, is because of how they interact. And one of the primary issues that comes out that transcends many others is the area of alcohol and substance abuse. So if you were to address hazing, but you were to isolate hazing, for instance, as an issue, without understanding issues related to substance abuse, you're missing the opportunity to bring about change because alcohol is many times involved in sexual assault, in hazing, and, and so on. So, so, you know, people are participating in that, the use of these substances, and then they're committing these crimes. I'm not talking about, again, the victims as such, uh, though they can be impaired making them more vulnerable. But again, it's not about their vulnerability. It's about the perpetrator's initiative. That's what this is about. So what I would say is what's important here is really get a big picture handle on this and look at it collectively and say, okay, how do these things interact? Because we know that there's sexual assault during hazing. Hazing rituals and rites can involve that. So we don't want to isolate them. We want to look at them together. Mhm. And are your are your um, nine experts? Um, nine do they experts, sit down they together sit down like together once a month like and a panel, or are they all across the country and do you do webinars or something like that? Webinar or something like that? Well, they are all across the country, and so we do have at the very least an annual gathering and that's a regroup. Of course, understand the dynamics here. This really can be done virtually because. The experts, they focus on their subject area, but then they interact with others and they have these relationships. So we're actually talking about collective training opportunities where, again, let's say the, the person who's focused on alcohol and substance abuse and hazing and sexual assault, those three areas and individuals say, okay, let's talk about those together. Let's train on those together. But they, because of the nature of how the assessment is deployed, they really don't need to meet regularly. We're we're going to be looking at and reviewing, of course, as we go along. We just deployed this in August, but it's going to want and need, you know, regular uh, review. The question is how frequent will we need to do that, and, again, that's based upon resources. One of the things we are doing that I would add to this is there's a, really the National Association of Student Affairs Professionals, uh, NASPA, as we affectionately call them, and they call themselves, we, we are teaming up with them to do training on what they call life briefings. So these are for, for they, they have a lot of training, NASPA does, but the foundation is teaming up with them to provide about every six weeks, when we just, we just did our first one uh, in March called on hazing, but the idea is really to, to focus on, in part, the nine subject areas, but also other areas surrounding campus safety, and to begin to orient folks who are in that field to say, you know, there is good training out there. They, they certainly get a lot on uh, Title IX and Clary, which they need to, because, again, that's kind of a mandated commitment. But there's also things around that that can contribute to the safety of the school and the school environment. And so we're trying to provide special things. They're about two hours long. And um, so the campus professionals, uh, they, they can really sign in. And it's an online training, but it's live. So I, it's more of a distance learning format if you're, different, if you're aware of different mm-hmm. modalities. Mm-hmm. So I'm really yeah. encouraged by that, you know, because that's an opportunity for people to, to really refine their understanding and skills and 
particularly around, you know, these areas of campus safety. Right. So, so in other words, these experts are constantly information gathering and refining the information online so that whenever you happen to go in, um, you have the latest and greatest, right? Well, the, yeah, these folks, I mean, the folks that we have are nationally known experts on issues of campus safety. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll highlight Hank Neuer, who's at Franklin College in Indiana. Hank is nationally recognized for his, his expertise on hazing. He's been focused on this issue for long before many people even knew what the word meant or even had heard of the issue. And Hank is an amazing guy. We did a two-hour live briefing, as I mentioned, where he mm-hmm. took the participants through an understanding of hazing issues and so on. And so that's really a way for them to, for folks to, to get really the, the most current up-to-date information you know, we, we live in a great age of technology where, you know, that can happen. And you don't have to, you know, we don't have to ship Hank anywhere. We can put him <laughs> online, put him in front of a camera, and yeah. and like we're doing, except without the camera, thank goodness, you know, you're not looking at me, people can can see and hear live. And then we, we those those trainings are actually archived as well, much like your radio shows. So people can go back and they can subscribe and, and they can view them. Or- that's great. I mean, it sounds like, you know, you've got a great framework here and a lot of um, yeah. participating. Yeah. And I'm hoping that Absolutely. this podcast that, that will get more more people to go to their geographic state institutions and, and private ones and say, hey, let's go into this. But this occurred to yeah. me, Will. We've got about 13 minutes or so left of our show just to let you know. Um, okay. Do we not, should we not make the, maybe the error in our thinking of saying an institution like Yale or any of the schools that they would automatically have the best resources with regard to this and are on top of it versus other smaller private places? Okay, uh, I, I think I things might have cut out there. Could you could you I'm, say I'm that sorry, again or rephrase it, again. it for me? Um, yeah, should we should we automatically think that Ivy League schools are more prepared in these more areas than, than private institutions? smaller ones with smaller resources with less resources. Wow. Well, that's a, a really great and kind of loaded question, Donna, because. <laughs> okay. Sorry. You know, I'm not speaking to any. I'm not speaking to any specific school here at all. So right. I want to make that clear to anybody hearing. But okay. there is a trend actually toward the opposite. I would suggest potentially in that if you're a state and established institution, you know, well, a lot of these institutions that uh, that you're describing have incredibly massive endowments. I mean, we're talking billion dollar endowments that really fund their institution and provide, you know, the capacity for them to do what they do. And so I'm not accusing any of them of anything, but what I have sensed is the potential for them to say, well, you know, we're not concerned about our image as an institution from the standpoint of of students. So, you know, any of these schools, they don't have any problem getting recruits. So the temptation might be to say, well, we don't have to worry about this issue because we've got plenty of students and we always will. 
I think the, I would suggest that, you know, the image issues could be a concern, but that's really kind of crassly selfish. I would say this is about doing the right thing. No institution that I know of wants to have an unsafe environment. Sometimes they don't know how to secure that safety necessarily. If it's a multi-campus community college or a multi-campus institution, you know, it's complex. So we know it's complex. But what I would say, suggest is, any Ivy League school should be committed to safety, and they do have the resources to invest in it, and they should. Now, along with that, you were talking about smaller schools. Yes, it is a challenge for smaller schools. I mean, that there, there's a Title IX coordinator, a person whose responsibility to deal with the compliance issues, and if they are a school who receives funds that, would, that requires them to have a Title IX coordinator, you know, that person could wear many, many hats. That's not easy. And yes, resources can be limited. But what I've observed is like for 32 NCSI, you know, there's ways to, to give them resources, ways to give them help, ways to give them training. And 32 is free. That don't cost so they could go much. on. Don't cost, yeah. Yeah. I mean, free. 32 as an assessment is absolutely free. Now, yes, it might provoke something where we say, okay, I need to find training there. But again, we, we can explore the opportunities for uh, cost-effective training. You know, universities going together, if they're, in a, you know, if they're in a network or an association where they can collaborate, you know, they could, they could lower the cost of that, those training opportunities. So it, at the end of the day, you could say, well, we don't have enough resources to do something. Well, quite frankly, if you don't address it, you could have one incident that could absolutely upend your budget for a long, long time. So, right. you know, it's it's Think worth the, the investment. Right? Think out of the box. That's right. Creative Think out ways. of the box. I think we need to. Um, you know, one thing that's you know, kind of intrigued me, and I just put up a post of a couple of years ago, Natalie Holloway, Natalie Center, talks about the state of Particularly if you're studying abroad. Mm-hmm. And I know that that's one of the areas that I think you were trying to, to focus on, given your resources. Can you talk a little bit about that? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a that's a great one. Thank you. I mean, we didn't talk about this, but you you really tossed me a nice little softball there. You Thank know, you. study abroad safety. Yeah, study abroad safety is a significant one, and it's one that we're looking to expand for our 32 NCSI and our nine categories to include study abroad safety. And there are, there's meaningful work being done about on, on study abroad. What happens though is that many times uh, students and families can assume that the, you know, robust considerations for safety have been given when you leave the continental United States or even, you know, traveling from one state to the next. And that isn't always the case. So, what we really want to do is reinforce again that no matter where a student is, what, if they're under the aegis of a, an institution, that institution, whether or not they delegate authority to a third-party tour guide or third-party training institution, the safety issues need to be in view. They need to be, have considered you know, the appropriate things, the logical things that should be uh, considered when, when it comes to something like safety, whether that's on a campus, off a campus, or out of the country. And there are profound issues associated with that. And, you know, Natalie Holloway and many others, you know, unfortunately, many times it's the surviving family members who have to discover 
wow, there was a huge gap in safety policy and practice procedure that uh, resulted in the death or the injury of my loved one. Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. that is that, going to be, in my understanding, is in my understanding, incorporated into Yeah, we, you know, we would add a tenth and so on. Uh, again, it's about capacity. So having just launched it in August, you know, we're yeah. we're really trying to make sure it's it's well functioning and we're supporting the participants that are involved right now. But Absolutely. I mean, study abroad is a priority for us. We, it's a huge industry, and it's a growing industry. I mean, people want to do a semester abroad, sometimes a year abroad, and so on. And, um, you know, I think there's, uh, I don't, I, I think there's about 500,000 students. You know, somebody's going to kind of Google that and find out maybe I'm wrong. But there, there are a lot of students who travel abroad for study abroad programs. And, um, you know, again, it's continuing to grow because it, it, it's a great opportunity in many ways. The question is, is it the most, is it the safest possible? I mean, everything is a risk, and so it's about appropriate risk, manageable risk, aware risk. Am I aware of the risks I'm taking so that if I take them, I understand them? That's the big issue. But many times, you know, participants don't understand the risks that they're being subjected to. So, we we want to focus on that because that is an important area. Yeah, for sure. And wasn't there also cyber safety you were contemplating? Yeah, we're we're looking to add cyber safety. Yes, as one of those areas. You know, my my training and some of my focus has been on cyber safety, cyber victimization, and remediation. And uh, so definitely, that's one of the areas I would promote. Because that transcends, again, many other areas. The cyber is used to commit not just financial crimes, but also to lure people into situations of risk and danger. And, and, you know, cyber is uh, kind of a generic term in some ways for the potential to do things to other people, many of them bad. Obviously, the cyber is incredible. It's, It's changed our world, given us access to information. But it's also created new and uh, unexpected threats in many ways. I won't regale you with the stories uh, and the, the opportunities that I've had to hear people in their victimization. But uh, in the course of my service with NOVA, I probably took about 5,000 victim assistance calls myself. Uh, the organization has a, a victim assistance line. And so, you know, I had my own database of experience with that, but also the tools that I brought to bear to help people to deal with with identity theft, uh, you know, the fraud, the victimization, and so on, bullying, harassment. And so we want to focus on that as well because, you know, the campus, the school environment uh, clearly is focused on the cyber. I mean, it's, it's, it's embedded in everything. The question is, do we, do we understand how it, how it should be used by us appropriately and how we should protect ourselves appropriately? Right, and I think you did right. make and reference to it in one of our former shows that you and I did that people would like to go back and give a more of a detailed description of that. I, I would encourage listeners to do that. But I'm just wondering also, and our winding down of the show here about three minutes, What's the longevity? What's the longevity? Is it dependent upon grants or donations or what? 
Well, at present, 32 NCSI is is firmly established, and it's you know it's an initiative of the VTV Family Outreach Foundation. So you know it's it's really a commitment of the foundation, and so it's going to continue as long as the foundation it's going, to continue, continue. It's going to continue. That's right. Now, you know, admittedly uh, and very transparently, you know, the opportunity to expand it. Uh, and maybe uh, expand functionality as well as the modules. Again, is contingent upon expanded funding. But what I would say is, right now, you know, as is, it's a great resource. It's a an incredible opportunity for university administrators to do this self-assessment. And we have, uh, you know, we have a number of institutions who are who are very committed to it, and. Um, so we're really, you know, we're really pleased with the feedback they're giving to us about how the value that it represents to them. Right. And there is opportunity and to donate, correct? Can you give us Well, absolutely, yeah. I mean, the best place to, to go to make a donation to the, the foundation is uh, vtvfamilyfoundation.org. Uh, so if mm -hmm. you can post that at your convenience, but it's vtvfamilyfoundation.org. There okay. naturally is a donation page, and you know those those funds would be well used to advance the the cause of the foundation, which is a noble one, and it's a great one. I mean, the, you know, the families have said we're going to focus on positive things. They have to they they ne will never forget the losses that they've experienced as family members of April 16, 2007. But at the same time, if you go on the on the website, you'll see that, and then there's a there's a donate as well as contact page. You can go right on there and, you know, donate $5,000 easily. You just put in five and three zeros and you're, you know, <laughs> you're all set to go. Well, how about $5 to start with? Well, to start with. <laughs> well there you go. We'll take it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Delilah, what, what do you think? Delilah, I think we've, we've covered a lot of information here, right? Oh, yeah, I, I really think oh, we yeah, have. And, I really um, think we have. And, um, something that listeners really need to take note of, really especially if they are college age people or if they have children. Or if they have children. Or grandchildren, right? Right. Exactly. Students are the future. Yeah, so yeah. I, I think yeah, this is so very I, important, I and we will put up a post to the DTB Family Foundation so that people can peruse that and hopefully donate. And I want to thank you so much for coming on again, and we will be sure to share this and make it available in the archives. Will you keep in touch with me, Will? Will you keep in touch with me, Will? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Donna. Very good. Okay, fantastic. Thanks so much. Yeah, that's Alrighty. great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Delilah. Thank you so much. Thank you, Delilah.